BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is a candidate for governor of West Virginia, Stephen Smith. West Virginia can't wait. WVcantwait.com is his website. A friend of our show, uh, one of my producers actually for years and years, Troy Millick, introduced us to Stephen Smith and the new Redneck Rebellion. Stephen Smith, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I'm remote here. We're doing the show live from Netroots Nation here in Philadelphia. Heads up at FYI. So Fair enough. tell me about your campaign, West Virginia Can't Wait. What we're interested in is actually trying to get the closest thing West Virginia has ever had to a people's government. And that means not just one candidate, right? So I'm running for governor, but what we're actually trying to build is a political infrastructure that can take over and build a government that works for all of us. Here's what that looks like. More than 229 people already recruited and trained as county captains across all 55 West Virginia counties. 38 constituency teams on top of that. So veterans can't wait, students can't wait, social workers can't wait, seniors can't wait, people in recovery, uh, building independent political power, not around one person's name, but as part of a larger movement. And then of course you need more than one candidate. So I'm running for governor, but we already have 42 candidates up and down the ballot who have signed on to a pledge that is unapologetically pro-labor, refusing to take corporate cash, refusing to hide from a debate. So that at the end of the day, what we have is a movement that can win a people's government rather than a traditional political campaign. Now, your incumbent, Jim Justice, the current governor, is a billionaire. How do you take on a billionaire, Stephen Smith? Yes, you can't take on the good old boys one-on-one, right? They're counting on us doing the same old thing, fighting them money for money, ads for ads. Instead, the only way you beat that kind of concentrated power is with a movement like the one we're building. So 88 town halls and organizing meetings across the state, more than 450 visits recruiting people in union halls and drug recovery programs and church basements. One of the things that's been exciting is that all of that people power actually does lead to money power as well. We just got our filing report back from the last quarter and our campaign outraised 
every single other 2020 gubernatorial campaign in West Virginia combined, including Jim Justice, who's the billionaire current governor, and his main challenger, Woody Thrasher, who's a millionaire, we're outraising them by bringing in small donations over and over and over again and, uh, and building a real people's movement. We're talking with Stephen Smith, the candidate for governor of West Virginia. WV, as in West Virginia, can't wait. C-A-N-T-W-A-I-T dot com is the website. And the Twitter handle is WV can't wait. Stephen, you have invoked, if my understanding is correctly, the Battle of Blair Mountain repeatedly. Mm-hmm. It's 1921 uh, uprising, essentially. How does that tie into your campaign? And what's the through message here? Sure. So a hundred years ago in the southern coalfields of West Virginia, working people came together, blacks, whites, and immigrants, sometimes not even speaking the same language, and took on the most powerful industry in the country, the coal lobby. And they did so at a time where taking them on meant putting their own lives at risk. So the Battle of Blair Mountain took place about 100 years ago, where those miners, black, white, and immigrant, marched south to protest the ongoing living conditions in the mines, safety, and fundamentally, whether or not the coal owners, coal companies, were going to allow them to unionize. And that fight led to the bloodiest labor conflict in American history, right here in West Virginia, because people of all different race backgrounds came together to fight as one. That is the spirit that's actually driven West Virginia in many ways over the last hundred years. And we saw it again up close a year ago when it was West Virginia teachers and school service personnel wearing and waving those same red bandanas that the coal miners wore a hundred years ago, sparking a nationwide strike movement. And so we think that history is truly in our blood and it's the best part of who we are. And it's accessible to us if we invite coal miners and teachers and working people from all walks of life into one movement that we can defeat even the most powerful interests. Yeah, that really is pretty extraordinary. Uh, We're talking with Stephen Smith, the uh, candidate for governor of West Virginia, WV as in West Virginia, WVCantWait.com, Twitter at WVCantWait. My recollection is correct. In the Democratic primary of 2016, Bernie Sanders swept your state. It was one of his largest victories across the country, West Virginia, and as I recall, Michigan as well. States where there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of working class people. How does that inform your campaign? What does that tell you about what the people in West Virginia want? That's right. So the conventional wisdom about West Virginia is dead wrong. There's this idea that West Virginia has become very conservative or very right wing. We haven't become right wing, we've become angry. And that anger is rational because frankly, both parties in West Virginia have failed us and have been failing us for a long time. And so what you see is that as popular as the president may be in West Virginia, Bernie Sanders is more popular than the president and the striking teachers and school service personnel are far more popular than Sanders. And so what we're looking for here is what everyone in America is looking for, which is a movement of, by, and for us, and a government that responds to us, as opposed to a government that responds to out-of-state interests or national politicians. We're tired. The way one of our supporters put it, he said, if another politician comes to me and tries to tell me what should matter to me, I'm going to shoot him. (laughs) Right? That what we are done with Uh, people other than us trying to tell us 
who we are and what matters to us. And that kind of anti-establishment um, uh, power is what we need and it's who we are here. You mentioned the things that your campaign is moving forward on doing. I'm wondering what you're pushing up against. What is your current billionaire governor? What kind of horrible policies has he inflicted on the citizens of West Virginia? Yeah, so on the last day of legislative session this year, he and the legislature had in front of them, they could have passed a serious black lung pension bill for minors. They could have passed funding for a veterans clinic and home in Beckley. Instead, they went and gave $60 million a year in additional tax cuts to coal barons, right? That what we're talking about is the distribution of wealth. And right now, thanks to this governor and to decades of crony good old boy rule, uh, all of the wealth in West Virginia gets sucked up and out. And what we're saying is that wealth ought to stay here. This is the richest time in our state's history. We ought to have the best roads and schools and highest wages we have ever had. And we can have that, but only if we come together and fight. There you go. And the website is WV, like West Virginia. WV can't wait, as is the Twitter handle. Uh, Stephen Smith is the candidate for governor of West Virginia. Stephen, good luck. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks so much for having me on. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Vincent Warren is with us. He's the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Now, Michael Ratner started this and was a friend of mine, and his sister Ellen has been a dear friend of mine for decades. And I really haven't kind of caught up with what's been going on since he passed away. Yeah, it's and, great to be on the show, Tom. Thanks thank so much. And yeah, Michael passed away in 2016. And for, I know you know this, but for people that don't know this, really one of the premier human rights lawyers of our time. Oh, he's the guy who three times took the Bush administration to court in the Hamden case, and I forget the names of the other two. Yes. And, and said, you know, torture is not acceptable and, and, and what what Bush was up to. And won. Yes. we uh, The Center for Constitutional Rights and Michael um, were the first people to represent the Guantanamo detainees. Uh, we had three Supreme Court cases that we won. We were the first civilians to go down to represent the men in Guantanamo, and we're still, 18 years later, still representing Guantanamo detainees. Wow. Yeah. And Michael also was um, really key in helping to formulate our anti-militarism litigation and advocacy. So under, while he was still alive, we were suing the Obama administration for their drone strikes and killing of uh, American citizens in far-flung places like Yemen. Since then, the Center for Constitutional Rights has shifted its focus and had been thinking a lot more domestically around racial justice and criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in 2013, we won the big stop and frisk case in New York City where we essentially ended that program. We also filed I lawsuits. I didn't realize that was you guys. Oh, I that thought was that was us. just like, you know, local political pressure. That, you know, the way that we work, we were a movement lawyering organization. Huh. And so part of the what differentiates us from maybe some other legal organizations is that it's less important that we, that everybody knows that we're the ones that do it, and it's more important that the local people, uh, the activists and the community organizers really are front and center in terms of the strategy. So we were part of a large coalition, but we litigated the stop and frisk case, uh, but it's been taken over the finish line by uh, advocates and organizers that could use that litigation win as uh, momentum in their broader tools. Right. We also um, ended long-term solitary confinement in the state of California by representing um, men in solitary confinement in Pelican Bay, long-term solitary confinement. And um, since then, 
We've also, and we have an international uh, component to our work as well, uh, have been suing since, gosh, the Abu Ghraib scandal um, to California corporations for uh, who are private military contractors who were doing the torturing of men in, in, in Abu Ghraib. And um, that case is still going on, actually. And so we have a range of uh, international human rights and domestic work. We also do a lot of work uh, with uh, local Black Lives Matter activists, um, with people in Louisiana. Our big cases now are uh, working with activists that are challenging the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, uh, energy transfer partners that also uh, brought you Dakota Access Pipeline. Right. They're really driving these pipelines down through the south, and we're working with activists on those types of strategies there. That's remarkable. We're talking with Vincent Warren. He is the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. The website is ccrjustice.org. And uh, Vince's Twitter handle is Vince Warren, V-I-N-C-E-W-A-R-R-E-N, or at the CCR. Um, Vince, uh, this, I, this may or may not have any, anything to do with anything you're doing, um, but I'm wondering, do you, Eric Prince has been such a uh, consequential actor in so many of what I view to be war crimes, frankly. Um, is there ever going to be, and, and then, you know, meeting the Seychelles and hanging out with the Russians and trying to get Trump elected and all this stuff, is he ever going to be brought to justice? Well, it, interestingly enough, it does have something to do with what we're doing. So, but we were also, the Center for Constitutional Rights was the group that sued Blackwater for... Which um, Eric, Eric Prince started. Which Eric Prince started. Uh, he was the chief uh, of... He's the he, billionaire brother of Betsy DeVos, by the way, our education secretary. Exactly. So um, we were challenging uh, Blackwater that uh, essentially executed 17 people in New South Square um, uh, a number of years ago. But he has largely uh, come back into the public eye, just like you said. He is... Uh, very much implicated in all of the Russian dealings. And um, you will also recall that there was a point when he was trying to make a pitch publicly to the Trump administration as to how he should be the company or the, that takes over the privatization of the military in right. the United States. He was making a big pitch. People have a lot to be concerned about. He's making that pitch like now him. in the Middle East. He's making that pitch to the UAE and, and uh, those countries in that region. In fact, he lives there now, doesn't he? I, I'm not sure where he lives, but I know, I know he's been all over the place. And so I wasn't surprised I was shocked but not surprised to see him pop up in places like Seychelles. And he is working, seems to be, with all of these other different regimes to try to essentially create uh, a private mercenary argument, uh, uh, army that works under the behest of state government. Shades of Blade Runner. I mean, it's, this is dystopian stuff. Uh, we have about so a minute left. We're talking with Vince Warren, the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. What's the main carry? Oh, we just have 10 seconds. Uh, the main thing, the main message you want people to know about what you're doing. Um, we work with social movements, and we work as litigation and advocacy folks to be able to advance the movement goals. Sometimes lawyers can take the the wind out of a movement. Sometimes it can propel the movement through litigation. We try to propel movement work through litigation. That's great. The website is ccrjustice.org. You can tweet at Vince Warren or at the CCR. Vince, thanks a lot for being with us today. Thanks, Tom. Great having you. Appreciate it. That was great. Thank you. You know, not sleeping well has a lot of consequences. It can cause you to gain weight. It can screw with your memory. Um, it actually increases your risk if, if you chronically don't sleep well of heart attacks and strokes. It's just not a good thing. And uh, one of the big challenges that people have is getting a good night's sleep, particularly when it's hot out. Uh, you know how tough it could be to sleep during a heat wave, even if you have air conditioning. It just kind of creeps in there. 
get this. There's actually a bed. This is a brand new bed that helps you cool, keeps you cool throughout the whole night, no matter how hot it is outside. The Pod by 8sleep is the first and only bed with what's called a responsive surface technology. It's designed to keep you cool all night long. The Pod is the Tesla of beds. The Pod dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body. And this is what science shows can help you sleep deeper leading to optimal mind and body performance. You'll find that 8sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems. And with the pod, they're delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty hot nights again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com Tom, E-I-G-H-T sleep.com T-H-O-M. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They already sold out of their first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Check it out. It's amazing. On the line with us is Dr. Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Understanding Marxism, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two Fs at the end, dot com. Tweet him at profwolf with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Recently, I had a conversation with an economist, Steve Keen, who's been on our program many times over the years. He's one of these advocates of modern monetary theory, among other things. And uh, he pointed out that, and I'm not sure if it was specifically in that interview, but it's been pointed out in other venues, that both Australia and Japan have not had a recession in something like 20 years. They've just kind of muddled along, which has been largely okay with most people in those countries, I think. Better than the crash and burn every eight years and then the hyper booms that we get. And he was of the opinion that it's possible that the Fed has figured this out, and the central bankers around the world have figured this out, and that we are not in for an upcoming crash. Instead, we're in for 10 or 20 years of muddling through, but things being pretty much the same as they are now. I wanted to do a reality check with you on that. Yeah, well, I, I know Steve Keen, and I, I'm familiar with the modern monetary theory arguments. Here's what I think is valid, and here's where I think I part company with them. It has always been true that the government in a capitalist system is called in as the lender of last resort, the spender of last resort. It's the wonderful irony of capitalism that when things are going well, the private capitalists tell you all about how wonderful the private sector is and how burdensome the government and unnecessary and full of people wasting time and collecting money. And then when the inevitable comes, the crash of private capitalism, they all get on their private jets, run to Washington, and beg this thing they've been making fun of to save them. And since they control that government in the end, the government, surprise, surprise, saves them. That's a thumbnail summary of what Roosevelt did in the 30s. It's a thumbnail summary of what Bush and Obama did in the second worst crash in 2008. One of the mechanisms of doing that is the control the government has of the money supply. It's not the only mechanism, but it's one of the mechanisms. And so, effectively, they pump money into the economy to kind of lubricate it, to get people more comfortable about spending. They drop interest rates so they get more comfortable about borrowing in order to spend. 
either you do that directly, that's modern monetary theory. Let's have the government go in, print the money, and use it to do what governments do. But the problem in the past has been when you give that much power, that monetary power, to a political leader, it's only a matter of time before that political leader abuses that. And so what happened in capitalist countries was they created a bit of a buffer, a quote-unquote independent agency. It's either the central bank, like the Bank of England or the Bank of France, Or in the United States, it's the same thing, but we don't call it the Bank of the U.S. because of our history. We call it the Federal Reserve. It's supposed to be an indirect way. But if you know how the Federal Reserve works, it basically prints money. It's basically part of the government. There's a bit of an arm's length from the rest of the government, and that was hoped would work so that the government could, with monetary and fiscal policy, Manage. That was the wisdom that came out of the Great Depression. We won't have another Great Depression, they promised us, because monetary and fiscal policy, taxing, spending, and controlling the money supply, will allow the government to keep us from that disaster. People believed that until 2008, when it became crystal clear that under some circumstances, all of those lovely powers of the government that could be used to manage things could also be used to mess things up. My basic critique of of Steve Keen is simply, could the government's uh, use of modern monetary theory, just printing money and using it for the government's needs, and then using the tax collecting function to pull the money out, could that in some uh, theoretical framework keep things from exploding? Yes, it could. Will it? I don't think so. Any more than the monetary and fiscal policies that came out of the Great Depression proved themselves able to do it, and for the same reason. The larger political context, the struggle between employers and employees, the struggle between one country and another, the political machinations, not just of odd political characters like Trump, but of the normal, usual kind, not even to mention the ecological issues that I know Steve is concerned about, all of these are going to impose themselves on the government's management, so it is going to either make mistakes, if you want to look at it that way, or it is going to do political tasks even at the cost of economic stability. And I think you're seeing it now clearly with Mr. Trump as he beats down the interest rates to save himself from the recession before the election next year, how far he's going to go, how many international economic disruptions he's going to cause to get himself reelected, nobody knows. But could that screw up the great ideas of modern monetary theory? Sure it could. And that's the difference between what might work and what in the real world of the conflict-ridden capitalism will work. So, uh, Professor Richard Wolf, we're going we're gonna to have a hard break here in about two minutes. So, uh, to paraphrase or recontextualize what you're saying, if we looked at, for example, Turkey right now, where Erdogan has been pumping the money supply to get himself, you know, popular and reelected, and it's, and it's creating a crisis for the Turkish lira, 
um, right. that's your political interference. And and for the arguably for the first time in American history, we're seeing that with Trump explicitly lobbying the Fed. We saw it with the deregulation of the financial system in 99. That was less explicit. Is that what you're saying, basically? That's right. And I think Mr. Trump deserves credit or blame, depending on your point of view, because since he's going a bit further in manipulating trade relations with the tariffs and everything else to get himself popular and to get himself reelected, he is setting a new level, a new standard. It will now be more easy and more likely that Democrats will do that kind of thing because the nature of what counts as acceptable political behavior is being changed here and precisely in the direction that will not follow the dictates of modern monetary theory because it will be responding to different political, national, international pressures, and that's even before uh, ecological crises enter the picture, forcing governments to do things financially that don't conform uh, to the nice manage of the cycle. The big weakness of modern monetary theory is that it's essentially empowering a government which is ultimately corruptible, as we're seeing in Trump. Absolutely. And the irony is the conservatives sometimes pointed out uh, that one of the things that went wrong with the socialist experiments in Russia and so on was when you give that much power to the government, yes, it can do certain interesting things, make economics grow, but it can also abuse that politically. And you have to deal with that and not pretend that that's not a problem. Remarkable. Dr. Richard Wolf. I always learn so much from you. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Look forward to the next time. Me too. Uh, Dr. Wolf's most recent book is Understanding Marxism, democracywork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at profwolf, B-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We are live from Philadelphia from Netroots Nation. Isaiah Poole, our old buddy, came by yesterday and said, you've got to talk to Marjorie Kelly about this new book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Marjorie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks, thanks so much for being here. So, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the, Just the Few, forward by Naomi Klein. It's uh, collaboratively with Ted Howard and the Democracy Collaborative. What makes a democratic economy? A democratic economy is designed from the inside out for ordinary people to prosper and to do so within planetary boundaries. So it's about institutions, processes that really are about everyone prospering. You know, not about just regulating capitalism, but replacing it. So specific policy proposals, for example? Yeah, for example, let's have more employee ownership. I mean, Kirsten Gillibrand has already led legislation that got the Small Business Administration to incorporate employee ownership. Bernie Sanders is talking about employee ownership fund and having more employee ownership at at companies. Also, there is talk of the Accountable Capitalism Act, which is Elizabeth Warren is saying. We need a new purpose for companies inside them. If you're over a billion dollars, you need a federal charter. You serve employees, the community, as well as shareholders. Those are some examples. In Germany, any any company, and this is built into their constitution at Uh Harry Truman's suggestion back in the day, um, any company that has over a thousand employees, their board of directors has to be 50% made up of members of organized labor who work in that company. 
Um, is is that the kind of thing that's that you're perfect. talking about? That's perfect. Isn't that great, Tom? Yeah. And look at what it's done for Germany. Um, yeah, they've absolutely. They've got the, you know, one of the most successful. powerful industrial economies in the world, and it's just you know another little country in Europe. Well, it's not little. Absolutely, but you get my point. absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, smaller like, than Texas. Sure, sure. And you know, there are some companies like that in the U.S. Like for example, in uh, in California, there's a company called Recology. It's over a billion dollars in revenue. It's 100 percent owned by its employees. It's a waste hauling, recycling, composting company. Drivers there who are driving garbage trucks are making hundred thousand dollars. Wow, that's amazing. In Madison, I know I you know I wrote a book called Threshold, and the last chapter was about employee-owned co-ops as, as an alternative to capitalism, essentially. Sure. I went to Madison. There's a company called Peninsula Engineering that's owned by its own employees. Nice. And they're doing like precision machine work. Yeah, and just absolutely. Incredible, incredible cutting-edge stuff. And you know, 40, 50 employees. Union Cab in Madison is Super. a cab company. Cab, you know, cab drivers owned by its employees. Absolutely. So. Denver has Green Taxi. It was started by a union there. Yeah. It's uh, owned by its workers. Yeah. Tremendous examples all around the country. So that's one model. That's not the only model. Sure. Let's also talk about state-owned banks. Okay. And there's a, there's a bank in North Dakota. It's been around. It started for in 1909 or 1919. Yeah, it's over 100 years. Yep. Right. And it because of that bank, which is owned by the people of the state, and its purpose is to serve the people of the state. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. So this purpose of public service is already there. There are more community-owned, locally-owned banks in the state of North Dakota per capita than anywhere else because of this one uh, state-owned bank. And because of that network and that bank, that state avoided the ravages of the 2008 downturn. And it has created a movement nationwide for more state-owned, city-owned banks. In fact, the, the governor of California campaigned on, on the idea of creating a state-owned bank. How's that moving? I know Gavin Newsom came out in favor of it, which I thought was a big deal because there's been a it movement a to deal. do it for years in California, um, because California is sending billions of dollars to New York in profits for their banks. I mean, they, the, banks, the banks are handling hundreds of billions of dollars for the state. Where's that at? Um, it's it's moving along. I mean, you know, he's he's new. I, I don't think it's been enacted yet, but he, he campaigned on it, and he's still behind that policy. And there are other places that are working on this, too. Any state can do this. And, and even a municipality could do it, couldn't That's they? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, a good-sized city. They can sure. start their own bank. They don't have to do business with you know one of the big banks out of New York or whatever. It's it's uh, there is so much. Um, Marjorie Kelly is the author, along with Ted Howard and the Democracy Collaborative. The book is the making of a democratic economy, building prosperity for the many, not just the few. With a foreword by Naomi Klein. That's we were thrilled. It's an amazing piece of work. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm sorry I have it. I tried it at least read a book before I have an author on, but it's just been nuts here. And oh, I know, Tom. Time. Well, you've written a lot of books yourself. I did uh, the book, The Divine Right of Capital. Oh, right, yeah. Right around the time yeah. your book came out, you were talking about um, corporate personhood. Yeah. And Marjorie, we've got to wrap it up. I'm, I'm hearing a break in okay. my ear. So, Great. Marjorie Kelly, thanks so much for thanks being for with us. Tom. You have been a champion of good economy and good democracy for many, thanks many years. Thank thanks, you. Tom. Thanks so much. Okay. Nice, to, nice to meet you in person. Thank you. Hey, do you lie awake nights staring at the ceiling wondering if Donald Trump is going to end the world today or tomorrow? That's <laughs> a serious problem. A lot of us out there are not getting enough sleep. And what happens when you don't get enough sleep? Your eyes get all puffy and dark and, and you, you know, you, you start getting wrinkles and it's just... So what do you do about it? Well, you know, the hemorrhoid cream, the tea bags, none of that stuff works. What works is Plexiderm. 
and I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real live video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM in the Tom Hartman program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you live from Philadelphia from Netroots Nation. And with me is Nishmi Zarenko, the co-chair. Co-chair. Poorpeoplescampaign.org. Is that the national Poor People's Campaign? That is. That's is there the a national Pennsylvania site. website? There is. It's PAPoorPeoplesCampaign.org. Yeah, PA Poor People's mm-hmm. Campaign. Yes. So tell me about what is the Poor People's Campaign? Where did it come from? And what's it been doing recently? Sure. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, I always say that there was a campaign in 68 as well, right? There was the original Mm -hmm. Poor People's Campaign of 1968. It was the last thing that Martin Luther King did before he died, before he was assassinated. And we definitely believe it's one of the reasons he was assassinated, because he went from looking at racism to looking at racism, poverty, and militarism all together. Right. Which, Class. Which, yeah, which challenged the fundamental structure of our society, our political system, and our economy. And he made this pivot from civil rights to human rights. And the original campaign saw what we are seeing now, right? 50 years ago, they could already see what was starting to happen in this country. And tragically, with his death, the campaign fizzled out. And 50 years later, in fact, almost 10 years ago, I got involved in something called the Poverty Initiative at Union Theological Seminary. I was part of what's called the Poverty Scholars Program. And through that experience, I was able to visit mountaintop removal in West Virginia. I was able to visit in New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina. And what that effort was about was uniting leaders inside of organizations. At the time, I was working with an organization of youth in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Student Union. Mm -hmm. And we brought organizations together to build relationships, to do study, to actually study liberation theology, and to look at conditions across the country, right, and the connections between these things, right? And so there was a 10-year process of building and uniting those leaders that developed into the Cairo Center, which is now one of the national co-coordinating organizations of the campaign, along with Repairs of the Breach, which is Reverend Barber's organization, and the 10-year process of building Moral Monday. So when people ask me about the campaign, I always like to say that it was actually 10 years in the lead-up, both from Reverend Barber and Moral Mondays and also from the Poverty Initiative now the Cairo Center, in kind of building up and then joining together to reignite the campaign. But we called for reigniting the campaign almost 10 years ago. Wow. Is there a Poor People's Campaign in every state? There's a Poor People's Campaign right now in about 40 states in the District of Columbia. We're not in every state. We certainly want to be. I mean, we're in Alaska. I think that's pretty impressive. Actually, Alaska just did a pretty amazing action in their state house. But we've got a lot of states, a lot of energy, and there's coordinating committees at the state level in 40 states and then also in Washington, D.C. 
So tell me about the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign, which you're the associate. I'm a co-chair of the the campaign in Pennsylvania, and I'm also a member of the National Steering Committee. Mm -hmm. So we just came from a panel right here at Netroots Nation with members of the Poor People's Campaign in Pennsylvania from our coordinating committee. And in Pennsylvania, we have a committee that's made up of organizations. So we have the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, which is a group of directly impacted family members whose families are facing life without parole, because that's what we have here in Pennsylvania. You can be sentenced to essentially die in prison, even though you're not given a death sentence, right? So you can, you know, so it's... So life without parole. Life is, without parole. Yeah, sure. It's essentially a death sentence. In fact, there are some who would argue that it's more punitive than a death sentence, although, you know, the whole death sentence thing, let's not go there. But. Right. I mean, we're splitting hairs, right? And this is the system that we live in. So the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, we had a member on the panel from the Movement of Immigrant Leaders in Pennsylvania, which is an immigrant rights organization. We had someone on the panel from Anthracite Unite, which is an organization that is active in the coal regions of Northeast Pennsylvania. And so what we examined and what we showed is that in Pennsylvania, we have these strong, many of them statewide organizations that have come together around the Poor People's Campaign and they're working on different fronts of struggle. The Poor People's Campaign in itself is not a new organization, but what we do is we're uniting across all of those issues and all of those fronts of struggle and we're showing the connections between them. Right. And so example I'll give is that in the same week, a couple of months ago during the budget season, there was an announcement that Governor Wolf, our governor made, saying that he intended to raise the minimum wage. The same week he said he was going to cut general assistance which is a welfare program for very, very poor people. So you have the same week raising the minimum wage and cutting general assistance. Now, what the powers that be, I know, it doesn't seem to make sense, right? The rationale is it's state politics and... They're responding to their pressures on them. And so what normally happens is that the powers that be kind of think that, well, those are different constituency groups, right? So there's going to be folks that are going to fight back around general assistance, and there's going to be folks that are going to come out and applaud us for raising the minimum wage. And they're two different people, and they're not going to be collaborating, and they're not going to be working together. But because of the Poor People's Campaign, we were able to actually connect the dots between general assistance and the minimum wage and say that these aren't two separate issues, right? Social welfare programs are the floor underneath of wage. There's a connection between the two things. So if you have no floor underneath wages, then folks can actually depress wages as low as they'll go. And so these aren't two different constituency groups. The same people and the same families need a raise in the minimum wage, and the same family needs, someone in that family needs general assistance. So through that, if the Poor People's Campaign wasn't there, there would never have been anyone really talking about the connection between those two issues and not letting politicians off the hook for either one and not saying, yeah, well, we're going to praise you over here and then, you know, this other group of people is going to fight around over here, but we're actually all going to work together. Right. It's comprehensive, multifaceted, multidimensional. Right. To what extent do you find individuals being willing or unwilling to identify themselves as poor people? So we just had this conversation, and so... We know that poor is a four-letter word, right? It's a pejorative. Definitely a pejorative word. We have to look at the reason. Why is the reason? Well, the reason for that is that we get taught that if you're poor, it's your own fault, right? right? If you're poor, you did something wrong, or you have a moral failing, right? Or in the best best case scenario, something bad happened to you, right? 
but for the most part, it's seen as an individual problem, an individual moral failing. And we are, part of what we're trying to do in this campaign, and what we need to do if we're going to build a mass movement to end poverty, is that we need to understand that poverty is actually produced by the system, right? right? The economic system needs poverty to exist, right, right. that we live in. Right. And so therefore, being poor is not a crime and it's not a bad thing. It's literally a product of the system. The system creates poverty, not individual people, right? right? And so then, if we understand that fundamentally, then poor is just a condition that we're forced to live in. It's not something that we created and it's not something that we are on the hook for. Yeah. Has that word been racialized? It seems like the right has used poor interchangeably with black. When in fact there's more poor people, I think white people in the United States, although, you know, they're a larger proportion of the population. But. Yeah, I think, and not even the right. I mean, I think if you look at welfare reform, right, that happened under President Clinton, the image of a welfare queen during that time certainly was mobilized by the right, but the fact of cutting welfare, right? right was done under Democrats, and it's absolutely been racialized, and the racial element is constantly used to hurt all poor people, right? right? And so, yes, we have a deep history of racism and white supremacy in this country, and again, what we're doing in the Poor People's Campaign is lifting up how that is actually a tactic, right? It's a divide-and-conquer tactic to hurt all poor people across the board using race, and disproportionately hurting people of color. Right, and we started with Martin Luther King, you know, in the original Poor People's Campaign. By the way, we're talking with Nijmi Zarenko, the associate? Co-chair. Co-chair of the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign. We started with Martin Luther King and how he reached out to poor whites, essentially, mm -hmm. and said, you guys are getting screwed as bad as us. I mean, in different ways, arguably, sure. but we're all victims here of the system. And boom, they killed him. And we can speculate about how and why that all happened. I suspect, like you do, it wasn't a coincidence. But in the last minute or so we have left, I know in West Virginia, we just had a guy on who's running for governor of West Virginia. He's a very progressive guy. And it's a largely white state. How is the outreach to poor whites working? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the advantages that we have here in PA is that we had organizations working statewide across the urban-rural divide, across the racial divide, for some years before the relaunch of the campaign. Because again, right, this has been a multi-year process, and some of us come out of this trajectory and this legacy already anticipating that this was going to happen. Right. So we really have an advantage here in Pennsylvania. And so it is working. We just had at the Poor People's Moral Action Congress a young woman, 21-year-old woman from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is the middle of quote-unquote Trump country, if you listen right. to MSNBC, and she was testifying in front of the House Budget Committee about conditions in Johnstown, about her miseducation in the school system, that she wasn't actually taught about the true history of this country. She's a poor white woman. Right. I'm talking about how she wasn't taught about the real history of this country, and that, you know, that the message that people in her community get certainly is that the problem is immigrants, but that she believes that the problem is a small group of people who are profiting off of the rest of us. Right. And so it, it absolutely is. can work. That's great. Nijme Zarenko, yes. thank you so much thank for being you. with us thank today. You. Really a pleasure and an honor, in fact, to have you on the program. Thank you.
If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com com to learn more. Tom Hartman here with you, and sitting next to me is Senator Jeff Merkley. Senator, it's so great to have you with us, and and thank you for, for showing up. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm really, you know, what what is at the top of your list? I'm sorry we haven't had a chance to talk. I'm on your mailing list. I, I'm assuming it's because in the past I've contributed to your campaigns, um, and it seems like every week you've got some cause that you're highlighting. You're doing a really great job of promoting these progressive causes. Well, the biggest thing I'm focused on is the corruption of our federal government, the gerrymandering, the voter support oppression, the dark money, uh, the use of the minority veto in the Senate to uh, block basic legislation for working America. If we don't take on that corruption and we don't pass it for the People Act, we will lose on health care, housing, education, infrastructure, jobs, climate, chaos, and equality. We'll lose on it all if we don't fix the corruption in our nation. Tell me what the For the People Act is. So the For the People Act takes on the three things of gerrymandering, voter suppression, and dark money, plus... Is this H.R. 1? It's H.R. 1. The Senate version is called For the People. Tom Udall of New Mexico and I are the, the leads on the Senate. We have every single Democrat signed up. Mitch McConnell proceeded to uh, call in his caucus and basically tell people they must not co-sponsor this effort to protect the Constitution of the United States of, of America. And why is that? Because his power comes from the corruption. Right. And so that just tells the whole story right there. It really, really does. It's past the House of Representatives. Yes, it has. H.R. 1. And McConnell is blocking it in the Senate. There's no way around. There's no There's no Senate equivalent of a... Of a uh, Oh, what's it called? Petition to withdraw. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, no, there, no, there isn't. Uh, in fact, the Senate District was uh, intended to be very distributed power, uh, but the majority leader has used the tradition of the uh, the first to speak after any any gavel, mm-hmm. uh, and the first to provide an amendment and then blockade all other amendments to to essentially take away power from 99 other senators. Uh, so we've got to change the way the Senate operates. Here's a question that should be posed to every single presidential candidate. The Republicans in the Senate changed the rules in order to pass their agenda for the powerful by simple majority. Do we have the grit and the determination to change the rules to pass the for the people agenda by simple majority? And if we don't, you shouldn't be running for president. So basically what you're calling for is all the presidential candidates on the Democratic side to call for an end to the filibuster in the Senate. Yes, an end to the end of the filibuster. You can do it in a variety of, of, of ways. Uh, there's four or five different approaches. But the point is that when the Republicans wanted to distribute massive amounts of the federal treasury to the richest Americans, they took a loophole 
which is a, was a simple majority loophole to shrink the deficits, stood it on its head and said, we can use this to expand deficits, that is, tax reductions for the wealthy. They did it in 2001. Is that reconciliation? It was reconciliation. So yeah. they, they flipped it on its head. They brought in uh, a parliamentarian to change the interpretation, uh, and they got their agenda done by simple majority. Meanwhile, the, the vision of America, the for the people vision, is completely hamstrung by the minority veto, which is another way of describing the filibuster. It's a minority veto. It actually was devastating the Continental Congress. And so the founders deliberately did not put a supermajority on passing legislative bills. And in fact, uh, Hamilton in the Federalist Papers uh, rages about how destructive a minority veto is. Of course, uh, he calls it supermajority, speaking yeah. of supermajority. And uh, so we, we see that. Uh, it's so destructive, it's a deep freeze, uh, and it's enabling the powerful to completely uh, take over our government for themselves, expand income inequality, wealth inequality, and fail to address the foundations for work in America. That's, that's mind-boggling. Um, what else is on your stack right now? Well, I'm really immersed in the battle on the border for children and for all refugees. Uh, here in the land of Lady Liberty, holding her torch to the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Oh, we understand the plight of people fleeing persecution or famine or war. And to treat refugees as criminals and to take children and blockade them at the border, leave them stranded in Mexico, to put them in ice cold holding cells, to deny toothpaste and diapers and nutrition and, and water, to leave lights on all night long, yeah. to put them into a for profit prison system, homestead in, in Florida. Look at this headline. Outrageous. Headline, Trump administration stole at least 18 babies as young as four months from migrant families, House report says. This is unbelievable. If this was happening in another country, we'd be passing resolutions about, hey, this terrific human rights abuses, America must stand up against it. It's happening with our government, with our money, on our territory, and no one can change it but us. All Americans off the sidelines get involved in this battle uh, to treat uh, people fleeing persecution with decency and respect. And shouldn't we also be doing something about uh, helping them mitigate the damage that climate change is doing in Guatemala and Honduras and oh. that, and that uh, you know, Reagan's uh, militaristic policies in all three of those countries? Yeah, absolutely. I went down to the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and there's uh, in the grip of many challenges. Uh, some of those challenges directly related to Americans buying drugs. The money that flows there, the guns that flow there, resulting in street-level extortion. But as you appropriately note, uh, extended drought, climate chaos is uh, resulting in failed uh, corn crops okay. and, and uh, starvation, and people are, are fleeing for their lives for all these reasons. Literally for their lives. Senator Jeff Merkley, so glad to have you with us. So glad to have you as my senator. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's check in on the Talk Media News on the news of the day. Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joins us from the UN in New York. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. And Luke, uh, first of all, I understand today is your last day with Talk Media News. I don't know if I should have said that on the air, but I just want to thank you for the years of just absolutely brilliant work that you have done with us on this program. And I know that people at Talk Media News love you too. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure being on your show. One of the definitely one of the highlights of my week and, and of this job. So that means a lot. 
Well, thank you. So, uh, to the news, the Pentagon is reportedly planning on using U.S. Navy ships to patrol near the Straits of Hormuz. Now, the Straits of Hormuz is this very narrow kind of bottleneck through which all these oil-laden ships have to pass to get Saudi oil and UAE and natural gas out of the Persian Gulf there and into basically the rest of the world. And one half of the Straits of Hormuz, that land is Iran. So we're sending warships there? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, we already have warships there. Britain is sending a new destroyer to the region. So the amount of foreign military armaments in this very sensitive area is already on the increase. And this would be multitudes beyond that. The U.S. Navy apparently in talks with unspecified allies, though we are led to believe Great Britain is one of those countries. I'd be expecting to see some other regional militaries in the mix here are saying we're going to take over and protect freedom of navigation in these waters. This is, I mean, I think we can understand there is clearly an escalation risk here. It's one thing to have, let's say, cargo ships hiring out independent contractors to provide individual security or case-by-case instances of, a, let's say, a, a military destroyer escorting a given ship through the region. But just having the U.S. and several of its allies sort of unilaterally declare that because of these threats to maritime freedom of navigation, that they ought to be the countries to enforce that, I think is making people understandably nervous. I was putting this question to the UN today. They were a bit squirmy on giving me an answer, saying, oh, we want all countries to respect freedom of navigation. I wanted to push back or did and didn't get anywhere saying, yes, I understand all countries should do that, but is it the right of the U.S. and some of its hand-chosen allies to be the ones protecting the seas for everyone else? And, you know, I think that's a a big open-ended question here, but at the very least we can agree it does mean more Western military ships being deployed to this region if this Pentagon plan goes ahead, and that makes a lot of people nervous, not least bipartisan members of Congress who are starting to really try and limit the president's sort of war powers as it possibly would relate to Iran kind of a practical question. International waters, the definitions of international waters vary from place to place around the world, although there are some accepted standards. I don't know off the top of my head exactly what those standards are. Are the Straits of Hormuz narrow enough that there literally is no international water in the middle of it, or has it been declared an international water? Because the country's on either side, and it's uh, Iran on the on one side, and I'm not sure who's on the other side. Is it uh, UAE or Saudi Arabia? Or Please tell me. Is there a waterway there that is everybody agrees is international, or are they controlled or regulated by these two countries? Yeah, well, it's funny. I have the waters of the South China Sea and their territorial control basically memorized. As far as I understand it, there is, a, I believe, a narrow corridor of international waters that exists there. But it's very narrow and so narrow, in fact, that you see instances even when some of the most high-tech navies in the world. I know there was an incident between the U.S. Navy and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that occurred in sort of the late stages of the Iran nuclear deal process. And thankfully, there was a line of communications then between John Kerry and Javad Zarif that was able to be activated to defuse that crisis. But there have been well-documented instances of navies that ought to be able to navigate through a pretty tightly controlled area, straying accidentally into Iranian waters. So again, without the map in front of me, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I do know countries that at that time did not want to get into accidental squabbles in those waters have found themselves pushed into those situations by accident, which I think is even more of a reason to be wary of some sort of U.S.-led coalition military force trying to sort of sort out who ought to be going where.
Yeah, absolutely. And, and meanwhile, I understand Congress is trying to limit Donald Trump's ability to do what he said in 2012 Obama, President Obama was going to do, which is yeah. declare a war in order to get himself reelected with Iran. Yeah, this was another bit of sort of encouraging bipartisan agreement to try and claw back some of Congress's sort of war powers oversight, a bipartisan NDAA amendment. So, of course, we have our National Defense Authorization Act bill going through the House right now, the first time Democrats have moved that bill through since the Trump era began, a bipartisan amendment introduced by Ro Khanna of California and Republican Matt Getz of Florida passed today that would block any funds from being used for an unauthorized war with Iran, where President Trump to get us into one of those situations. Of course, there's a carve-out here for self-defense, and it does come down to whether the Senate wants to move on this and what would happen in the reconciliation process. But another sign, there's bipartisan frustration over the possibility of war with Iran, just like there has been about the conduct of the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. So, again, I'm glad to see Congress doing this. I'm just sort of wary about whether there's going to be that deep of Republican support for this as there was with Yemen. Remarkable. Luke Vargas, Talk Media News. Luke, I wish you the very best on your next adventure. I know it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks, it's, been, it's been great having you on the program. Cheers. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Sayu Bojwani is with me. Sayu is the founder and president of New American Leaders, and she's also the author of People Like Us, Knocking on Democracy's Door. The website is newamericanleaders.org, and her Twitter handle is S-A-Y-U-B-H-O-J-W-A-N-I, Sayu Bojwani. And Sayu, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you with us. You wrote this, the essential guide for the burgeoning democracy that has been in a long, a long time in the making. Explain. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this book telling the stories of state and local candidates who had run for office and successfully won even before the 2018 elections. But it was a way to highlight some of the challenges in our democracy that prevent newcomers from entering. So Newcomers as new immigrants? As new immigrants, but more broadly political newcomers. Anyone ah. who's not been one of the anointed, who's been recognized by precinct committee members, etc., that money, the corrosive influence of money, if you're both unable to raise money but also unable to make a living wage as a state legislator, some of the challenges that newcomers encounter when they try to, to run for office, redistricting and how that limits and regulates who can run, term limits and the incumbent advantage. So I use the stories of individual new Americans. In my case, I tell stories of all first and second generation Americans. But I think that any political newcomer faces these barriers. If you're not one of the wealthy or well-connected, it's very hard to run for office and win. Yeah, yeah. And the term limits thing, I'm, I'm on the mailing, I'm on everybody's mailing list. And I regularly get emails from FreedomWorks, the Koch yeah. brothers thing. Right. And their big thing now is term limits. They're ranting about we need to have term limits. And, and people call in occasionally and say, oh, we should have term limits. And I'm like, no, you know, it, it, term, what term limits does is it does away with the institutional memory 
and replaces it with lobbyists as the institutional memory, right. which of course is why you know the Koch brothers would want to fund something like that. So. Yeah, though I will say, so you know, one of the challenges when you don't have term limits is that it's very hard for new voices to enter the system because you're running against people who have a long-term right. set of relationships and are not always the right ones to represent the district. So you're in favor of term limits. I'm in favor of term limits, you know, 12, 16 years with regulations uh -huh. that you can become a lobbyist right. for a certain period of years. So I think there needs to be a balance. But if you think about Representative Ilhan Omar, for example, who's in Congress, you know, she ran against a 44-year incumbent someone who had been in office before she was born. And so we wouldn't have her in Congress if she hadn't been able to overcome the... But that was the ultimate term limit, which is an election. Right, exactly. But, but I know in several states that we've seen where they limit the number of years that somebody can serve, that when new members come in and they're looking around going, how does this work, what do I yeah. do? They can't find mentors. Right. And the lobbyists take them under their under their no, wings. I, I agree, that's a definite, that's definitely a big challenge. We need to enter, invest more, as more and more of our people, our advocacy people, our movement people enter office, sure. we need to invest in co-governance models, in regulations about lobbyists. Tell me about New American Leaders. New American Leaders was started in 2010. And our goal is to bring new voices into government, particularly by training first and second generation Americans and helping them see that they already have both the skills and the constituencies that they need to run and win, that they can use their personal stories, engage new and low propensity voters, and we work in 10 states around the country. Wow. You have a TED Talk out here that uh, talks about the importance of immigrants to American democracy. Now, I've heard arguments made that immigrants are important to the vitality of a, an economy. Right. Certainly, that's kind of the story of America in many regards. Democracy? Yeah, I think, you know, we are the most optimistic Americans, if you want to think about it that way. Because we being we, new Immigrants are the most optimistic Americans. We're the ones who fight to get here. We fight to stay here. And I think in the 2020 elections, immigrant family voters are an untapped constituency, right? Because over 2 million people, or nearly 2 million people, became citizens since the 2016 election. So what are candidates doing to reach these folks? People like me who, when I became a citizen, no one came to me and asked for my vote. And if I wasn't already someone who was civically engaged, I wouldn't have necessarily gone out to vote. So there's two million just since 2016. And of course, there are naturalized young people who have immigrant parents. All of these communities can be mobilized to change the outcome of an election. What, what sort of actions or activities are you involved in specifically around the country? Specifically around? Around the country. Around the country. On these so issues. we work, uh, as I said, in a number of states. We partner with local organizations to recruit people to run for office. We're looking for people who already are movement leaders. So they're working in the immigrant rights movement, in the reproductive justice movement, uh, who already have connections to communities. We help train them to run. And then we have an advanced boot camp to help them get even further ready to run. We have a C4 that endorses candidates. And then the C4 is also going to do voter engagement in districts where there are new American candidates up and down the ballot. Right. And, you know, a lot of what I personally do is talk about the importance of the immigrant vote in a number of settings, um, coach candidates who are thinking about running 
and you know, one last point I want to make about that issue is that many, many people already have what it takes to run, and they don't see in themselves what we see in them. Yeah. I, I think Ilhan Omar is probably a great example of that. Yeah. It's, it's, she has done such an extraordinary job, and, and now you've got Fox News and Tucker Carlson out there just trashing her mercilessly. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, one of the critiques of her is that she's not American. Well, he came around and said she hates America. Yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, counter to what I say, which is that the fact that we are able to see both the beauty and the challenges of being in America is, I think, a huge untapped asset. Yeah, I agree. Sayub Bojwani, founder and president of the New American Leaders, the author of the book, People Like Us, Knocking at Democracy's Door, the website, newamericanleaders.org. Sayub, thank you so much for being thank with you. us today. It's, it's great meeting you. Thank you. We're wrapping up the show here. A fascinating time at Netroots Nation here in Philadelphia. Hope you had a good time. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 